After marking hymn number 218, as Brother Harold has asked us to do in light of the invitation song to be sung somewhat shortly, I would invite you to make consideration with me of the heart of man. A particular discussion that involves, as the text led us to see a moment ago, as Brother Eddie read from the 30th chapter of Isaiah, in considering those matters and looking forward to a discussion of what is involved in the heart of man, we might well begin by noting the Bible has very, very much to say about that. In fact, what is it that is the heart of man? First of all, some introductory thoughts, and then to the very heart of the lesson today. As we each are well aware, I'm sure, the heart of man is mentioned many, many times within the sacred volume. Well, over 800 times in the scriptures, reference is made to the heart, and that alone signifies the great significance and importance that this subject has. In fact, as one makes note of that heart, one of the first matters that you and I must wrestle with in our world today is the usage of that term in a way that's different from the medical way in which it is used today. When you and I hear our doctor make reference to my heart or yours, it's to that organ in the chest that in fact circulates and pumps the blood throughout our body. But not once within the sacred scriptures is the word heart used in reference to that, to that organ. Rather, in all the instances in which it refers to that heart of man, it has to do with his center of intelligence, the center of his reason, the center of his thinking capability. That is his heart. I've listed just a small sampling, a fractional one at that, of some verses in which you and I can in fact see that point. In Genesis 20 verse 6, with regard to Abimelech, the statement is made to the integrity of his heart. Noticing then that his lifestyle and conduct was such that it was in a very notable way of integrity in which he, with the thinking and reasoning capability within him, chose to live in a way that was upright, forthright, and honest. In Exodus 4.14, God, here speaking, made reference to the gladness of Aaron's heart. We might well know that organ in the chest cannot be glad per se. It doesn't have that capability. But the mind of man can be glad, and God said that Aaron would be in light of his ability to aid Moses in the great work that he was to undertake. In 2 Samuel 6, verse 16, we notice that one of David's wives, Michael, despised in her heart what David was doing. Note again what the heart was capable of, something far removed from what the blood pump can do. We're gaining to see already that the heart of man can do many things noble. It can also engage in these activities in which it despises, in which it hates. Notice in Psalm 14, 1, the fool hath said in his heart, there is no God. That individual who so blinds himself to the evidence of the existence of God and conducts himself as though God does not exist and in his heart has said that there is no God, God said he's a fool. That itself isn't all. In Psalm 49 verse 3, do we not remember that in the meditation of the heart one appreciates the wisdom and the great glory that should be attributed to God? Didn't Jesus say in Matthew 15, verse number 18, that it is that which proceedeth from the heart that defileth the man, not that which goes in at the mouth? We begin to see that in the listing that follows, Jesus pointed out many things that have their seed that begins in the heart of man, be it adultery, be it hatred, be it murder, theft. 
Perhaps finally in Matthew 12, verse 35, a good man out of the good treasure of his heart will bring forth that which is good. Perhaps again, just a few verses that have reminded us that as the Bible makes reference to the heart of man, it's that seat of intelligence, that seat of thinking, where the will, W-I-L-L of man, is housed and where the actions that follow therefrom are set forth. To make mention of all that perhaps has not introduced anything new to us. But I would encourage us all to think clearly about it. Because after all, is it not true that there are those who rely upon their own heart for the guidance and direction in matters of religion? Question for each and every one. Is the heart of man an infallible, trustworthy, reliable guide in matters of religion? Is it such that because I earnestly and sincerely have come to trust and believe in something, does that alone make it right? May I submit to you that there are many who sufficiently feel the answer to be yes. Our goal shall be today to ask, What saith the Scripture, Romans 4 verse 3, and to turn back to the sacred volume and find God's answer to that question. Is the heart of man a safe, trustworthy, and reliable guide and infallibility in matters of religion. As we proceed to consider the matter of that question and its answer in the Bible, may I suggest we look at all three eras of time, first the patriarchal and following that with the mosaic and ultimately the Christian, and see if we can find God's answer in every one of those dispensations and upon a proper consideration of them then to reach the conclusion of our question today. Let's turn back to the patriarchal dispensation by first posing this interesting little figure. To those who would think then that the heart of man might well be an infallible, trustworthy guide, question perhaps for each of us, are the center circles the same size? We see a figure on the left and a figure on the right. There's a center circle surrounded by six in each instance. Are the center circles the same size? One, of course, would be tempted to say no. That's known as the Titchener illusion. In fact, they are. Is it always possible to trust the guidance of the heart, what one perceives and what one thinks? That's only a hint, perhaps, of what is yet to come. To the days of Job, let us go together. When we discuss the patriarchal age in time, we remember that was a time prior to that giving of the law in Exodus, chapters 19 and 20, that specific era in which God dealt with mankind rather directly. Job, though that book occurs later in the Old Testament, actually has its setting and scene in the patriarchal age. We remember Job to be described as the greatest man of the East bountifully blessed with many possessions in terms of camels, in terms of sheep, if you will. As this man was great blessed in that fashion, he, of course, was married and had a number of children. But isn't it a remarkable scene? This same man was afflicted, sorely and severely afflicted. In fact, his animals were taken from him by catastrophic events of that day and time. We also remember that his health was taken from him, at least by and large. As you and I remember that the scene of all that taking from him leads us to appreciate he did seemingly have three good friends who came to him and offered to comfort him in the time of his great loss. Their names were Eliphaz, Zophar, and Bildad. When they came to him, beginning in Job chapter 3 and continuing through Job chapter 30, 
They carry on discussions with and conversations with Job, attempting to aid him and help him. We find in the next chapter that another friend entered named Elihu. Their singular charge to Job. Job, due to these calamities and these catastrophes that have come upon you, there can be only one conclusion. You have sinned. You have engaged in wickedness. Though you may not be aware of it, you have. You need to fall prostrate before God, plead for His forgiveness, and thus all will then be again made well. That was their singular argument throughout. As the book of Job unfolds before us, we ultimately discover in chapter 38 that God enters a discussion and in fact Himself gives the divine and heavenly perspective. Question though for each of us at this point, were Job's friends correct in their perception of and their answer to Job? Did they in fact have God's divine recognition of approval on what they told Him? They strongly believed it in their heart. They were convinced that what they said was right. I would ask you to read with me a text. It's found in the last chapter of the book of Job. In Job 42, let us read verse 7 together. As we hear God respond to these three friends, this is what God had to say. And it was so, after that the Lord had spoken these things unto Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, might we quickly make note, God now turns his attention to Eliphaz, one of those friends, and this is what he remarks. My wrath is kindled against thee and against thy two friends, for ye have not spoken of me the thing that is right, as my servant Job hath. Though they understood in their heart and felt in their heart that their conclusion concerning Job was correct, and that their assertion of his sinfulness was an absolute certainty. We find here the God of heaven affirming Eliphaz, My wrath is kindled against thee, for thou hast not spoken the thing that is correct, as my servant Job hath. It would seem then, does it not, that the heart of Eliphaz, Zophar, and Bildad, as well as Elihu, was mistaken. They had reached an inappropriate conclusion. Their heart was not a trustworthy, reliable guide in matters of what they had concluded. I've listed some verses for your consideration in mind that seems to amplify this point. In Proverbs 26, verse 12, as that wise man Solomon affirmed the following, He that trusteth in his own heart is a fool. Those aren't the words of Randy Bybee. Those aren't the words of any preacher on earth today. Those are the words you see of none other than the God of heaven speaking through the prophet. And that isn't the only reference in the book of Proverbs to this point. He that trusteth in his own heart is a fool. Notice also Proverbs 28 verse 26, which in a similar way shares a thought that is very much like the one before. Could we perhaps take note that the person who in fact is so conceited to trust in his own heart is described again to be foolish, to behave in a way that is far from wise. Perhaps finally in verse 21 of Isaiah 5, we even find here a woe pronounced. Woe upon them that trust in their own heart, that in fact rely upon their own guidance. We seem to have discovered that God pronounces a strong word of warning about trusting one's own intuition, one's own wisdom in matters of religion. 
the fact is, in this early age and time, in the patriarchal era, we've noted that Job's friends were not correct. Let's consider yet another era, the Mosaic age and time. As we move forward now several centuries, no doubt, consider the following with me. We find in the heart of the Old Testament a very noted consideration of a man named Naaman. In 2 Kings, the fifth chapter, we might remember Naaman was a very noble and honorable Syrian individual. He was the commander, in fact, of the Syrian army. To be noted concerning him is this. As honorable as he was, he was nonetheless afflicted with that dreaded and terrible disease of leprosy. However, due to the victory that the Syrians had experienced, they had taken captive an Israelite maiden. She, in fact, was servant to Naaman's wife. Interestingly enough, this maiden made aware to Naaman and his family the fact there is a prophet in Israel that can relieve this man of his leprosy. Immediately, it would seem, Naaman took the interest to seek the services of this man. And he had the king of Syria write a letter to the king of Israel. And when the king of Israel received the letter, he was beside himself. I can't cure leprosy. I know of no one who can. In fact, the king of Israel was certain that the letter had been written just to instigate a war with Israel. However, the king of Israel had in fact acted in a very humble fashion by putting sackcloth upon himself and rending his clothes. When Elisha heard of such, he said, Send this man to me. When this man Naaman and his entourage came to Elijah's place, Elisha sent out a messenger and said, Go and wash seven times in the Jordan River, and thou shalt be clean. At this point, we notice that the instructions given unto Naaman seemed rather straightforward and simple. However, what was it that was Naaman's response? Let us read verse 11 of 2 Kings 5. But Naaman was wroth, and went away, and said, Behold, I thought... He will surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God and strike his hand over the place and recover the leper. Naaman was overcome with anger, wrathful. I thought. Naaman felt surely that Elisha would make a rather large and political scene over him. After all, he was a dignitary of Syria. After all, he was an exceedingly important man of Syria. To say the least, Naaman expected far more of a pomp and circumstance response than he obtained from Elisha. Go and dip seven times in the Jordan River. But Naaman thought. Was his thinking correct and proper? Did he respond in a way that would be appropriate and right in matters of even cleansing his leprosy? He thought. Perhaps your parents and mine often told us that thinking sometimes can be dangerous. You see, often we appreciate ourselves in a way much like Naaman was. He thought. Finally, we notice in verses 12 to 13, his servants aided him in understanding. If not, the prophet had asked thee to do some great thing, would thou not have done it? We can see perhaps the following. Was his reasoning correct? Was the thinking of Naaman on target? I ask you to notice with me some thoughts. 
His heart, you see, was filled with rage as he thought what he imagined ought to happen, but it did not happen that way. Notice some texts that perhaps lead us to see in Jeremiah 17, both verse 5 and verse 7, or rather verse 9. What do we see, especially in verse 9? The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Let us revisit that verse. The heart is deceitful above all things. Can your heart be trusted in matters of religion? God said it's deceitful above all things. God said the heart can thus be misled. It can be misdirected. It can be misguided. The heart is deceitful. It can believe that which is not so. Just like the Titchener illusion showed two circles that appear different in size, and you and I might believe it. But with a ruler, we'd find different. What is the ruler that does not lead astray? What is the yardstick that always leads to a perfect and true measure? Obviously, it wasn't the heart in Job's day, for Job's friends were deceived. Obviously, it wasn't the heart in Naaman's day, for he was wrathful for no good reason. Might we notice in Obadiah verse 3, that little one-chapter book nestled near the conclusion to the Old Testament. God there speaking to the nation of Edom said, The pride of thine heart hath deceived thee. Was thus the heart of Edom deceived? God said it was. Oh, today, if only the human family would appreciate the fact the heart is not an infallible, reliable, trustworthy God in matters of religion. And it has never been so. You and I must find a better yardstick than the human heart. We must have access to a true measure far superior to the thinking of the human heart. In fact, in light of these passages, we can see that God has already hinted at it. In the days of Naaman, what was the measure? It's what Elisha had said. You go and dip seven times in the Jordan, and the leprosy will be cleansed. Notice, though, but Naaman thought. There was something that contradicted what the word of Elisha was. It was his thinking. Which measure, I suppose, was the correct and true one? Which one was the trustworthy, infallible one? It wasn't Naaman's thinking. It was what Elisha had said. Maybe if we turn to the Christian era and look at yet another example, we will be in a position to reach a rather firm conclusion. So far, our two have been in perfect harmony. The heart is not trustworthy as a guide in religion. I would ask you to race with me forward to Acts the ninth chapter. As we come to that scene involving the man that we would come to know as the Apostle Paul. And in particular, his conversion is the matter that we shall set before our thinking this morning. We remember that Saul was a very vehement opposer to all that was the nature of Christ and all that was his gospel. As chapter 9 opens, he himself had in his possession letters whereby he could in fact call those who were Christians and imprison them in the city of Damascus. As Saul journeyed on his way toward that place, he seems to have been a person so greatly intent upon bringing to naught the movement of Christianity. He did all in his power to call it into question and to stamp it out before it ever gained a great movement. However, a bright light shone about him about the noonday hour of that day as he reached close to the outskirts of Damascus. 
And on that occasion, none other than the Son of God spoke to him, conversed with him, challenged him. During the course of that conversation, Saul, sufficiently convinced of the one to whom he spoke, said, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? Acts 9 verse 6. Jesus, in speaking to him very directly, said, Go into the city, and it shall be told thee what thou must do. And I might ask each of us to note the word must. On that occasion, the Son of God did not say what you should do, what you might do, what you may do, what you ought to do, what you can do if you wish to. He said what you must do. And that will be a critical point in the conclusion that we shall reach in a moment. So as we proceed to read onward in the verses that follow, we notice that indeed he was struck blind, Saul was, and he proceeded to be led by his compatriots until he reached the city of Damascus. Ultimately, we find that God appears to a servant of his named Ananias and encourages him, in fact commands him, to go and find this man named Saul who was both fasting and praying. What might we conclude at that point? Here was a man, namely Saul, who had seen the Son of God. Did he believe that Jesus existed? Absolutely, he'd spoken to him. He'd seen him. What else can we say? Was this man sorrowful for what he had done to the Lord's body, to the church? Was he sorrowful for his persecution of Stephen and the other Christians? In Acts 26, as Saul recounted this same effect, he admitted that he was sorrowful. Notice, he thus had a penitent spirit and a penitent heart. The question now might be asked, we see a man who believed Jesus to be the Son of God. He believed Jesus existed. We have come face to face with a man who is exceedingly penitent of the actions of his former life, the actions in which he himself had been an opposer of Christ. Was this man saved? He had seen the Lord. He was penitent in spirit and thus had exhibited repentance. Was this man saved? The vast majority of the religious world today make a statement often like this. Preachers by the multitudes encourage individuals one by one, you pray this prayer and ask God into your heart and you at that moment are saved. Let's ask, Saul had seen the Lord. Saul had repented. May I ask each of us to think carefully, if Saul was not yet saved at this point in his life, what right does any preacher anywhere at any time in this era have the right to claim that a man today could simply pray before a television or before a preacher this prayer asking Jesus to enter his heart and think that he is saved? And yet it happens so often today it brings tears to the eyes of those knowledgeable of the word of the Lord. For in fact, you and I know Saul was not saved at this point. And in fact, we have his own words to testify to that point. All we must do is listen to his own affirmation in Acts 22. In Acts 22, beginning in verse 15, Ananias comes following God's commandment and thus meets this man named Saul. And the first words out of his mouth, And now why tarriest thou arise, wash away thy sins, and calling on the name of the Lord. It goes without saying that a man in sin is not saved. That's a self-evident truth. Yet we find Ananias told Saul that he was still in sin. Though he had seen Christ, though he had been repentant, 
Why was he not saved? Those sins had never been forgiven, you see. The conclusion is inescapable. The conclusion is inevitable. Those who think today that they themselves can be saved only by belief and only by mouthing this thing that might well be called the sinner's prayer, they have not participated in those matters necessary for the forgiveness and remission of sins. We here see a clear example, even in the Christian era, of that falseness that is seen in so many instances. And yet, isn't it tragic that those that will say, I know in my heart that I'm saved. On that day, I asked Christ to enter my life. He cleansed me from sin, and never more have I been in sin since. He saved me. Friend, the Bible says, the pride of thine heart hath deceived thee. The Bible says, dear friend, that he that trusteth in his own heart is a fool. The Bible says that he that is conceited in his own life behaves in a foolish and unwise fashion. The heart is not an infallible, trustworthy, reliable guide in religion. We certainly take no joy and pride in using the scriptural term fooled in a way that seems demeaning. We use it in the way God does. We use it as descriptive of those who choose not to look at the evidence, who choose not to consider the fact they can be deluded and they can be deceived. All we must do is ask, what did they in the New Testament era do to be saved? And if we find what they had to do, we must simply do the same. I've listed some verses at the bottom of that same screen. In very loud terms, Saul was not saved on the road to Damascus. The Bible teaches that. Though there are many today who think he was, the pride of their heart has deceived them. When he came to Ananias and he was baptized for the remission of sins, we find then the perfect harmony to a host of other passages in which did not Jesus say, He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, Mark 16, 16. And was it not on Pentecost that Peter proclaimed, Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. That word for is the Greek word ace, E-I-S, at least in our language in English. And it has a prospective look. That is to say, perhaps noting the way the American Standard renders it, he, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ unto the remission of sins. It is for the purpose of remitting sins. We see then that sins are not remitted until the act of baptism. They're not remitted apart from and without the act of baptism. And those who think otherwise have been deceived. Those who think otherwise have trusted in their heart or the words of an eloquent preacher who himself may have been deceived. Either way, the deception of the heart is tragic. And it is not to be noted that that heart is a true and reliable guide in matters of religion. As we draw to a conclusion this study of the New Testament one, might we note two other passages from Proverbs. We have seen so far the nature of the Proverbs on more than one occasion teaching us that the foolishness of trusting in one's own heart. Listen to these other two passages. And it's always been a remarkable thing to note that there are two verses that read identically in the book of Proverbs. The identical nature of the subject of them is also to be easily appreciated. There is a way that seemeth right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. That occurs twice. In Proverbs 14 and also Proverbs 16, 
Let us again note it. There is a way that seemeth right unto a man. Thus, there's a way that seems earnest, appropriate, honest, and forthright, and my heart seems to support it. God says there's a way that seems right to a man. But how does the verse close? The end of that way, the end of that journey, the end of that pursuit, it ends in death. One can't trust one's own intuition in matters of religion. In the days of Naaman, what sense did it make to tie dipping in Jordan seven times to curing leprosy? No other person in all of history, as far as we know, have ever, has ever had leprosy cured that way. If the waters of the Jordan River could cure leprosy, why aren't there leper colonies scattered all along the brink of the Jordan? It doesn't happen that way. What cleansed Naaman from the leprosy was because he did what God said to do. And so it remains today. You and I can't cleanse sin by what we think will do it. You and I are not at liberty to think that sins are cleansed simply because we feel in our heart that it's so. We may end up in a devil's hell even though we thought we wouldn't end up there. We need a better yardstick. As it was in the days of Naaman, the yardstick is the Word of God. What Elisha had told him to do. Thankfully, Saul obeyed what Ananias told him to do. Not once did he question it. Why didn't Saul say, But Ananias, I've seen the Lord, I've repented, my sins are gone. Ananias said, You're still in sin, Saul. You need to be baptized. It still remains that way for multitudes today. You and I must submit in wholehearted obedience to what God has commanded. And only in that way has the yardstick declared our sins forgiven. doesn't matter what we think. God's ways are higher than ours, Isaiah 55, verses 8 and 9. His thoughts, His ways are sufficiently higher than ours as they're called heaven above earth. There is truly no comparison. Might it be noted as we close our lesson in this morning that the conclusion seems absolutely certain and escapable, doesn't it? Human reasoning and understanding in religion is folly. It is not a trustworthy guide. Only in matters of religion, certainly we must appreciate the wonderful nature of God's Word and rest fully and assuredly upon it. You and I have looked at several verses that have made the matter ever so straightforward and also ever so strong. There is a way that seemeth right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. The heart is deceitful above all things. Notice, that's just two of them. In Proverbs 28, verse 26, He that trusteth in his own heart is a fool. May we not be foolish. May we not trust in the thinking of our own mind, but rest upon a thus saith the Lord in all matters, be it what must be done to be saved, what are the proper elements for worship. We must turn to the Lord and let the Bible answer all of those questions. Today, don't trust in your heart for salvation. It's not something that you merely rely upon as a feeling. Oh, it's true, and let me assure you, when you're scripturally baptized and you come forth from that water, you will feel like you've never felt before. But it's not as though you have relied upon that feeling as the matter of salvation. You've complied with God's will. That feeling is a consequence of what God has done in forgiving your sins. If you've never experienced that today, but you know that you are a sinner and you know that Christ died for you, don't trust in your thinking, your intuition, and your feeling. Do what the Lord said. Believe Jesus to be the Son of God. Repent of your sins. Confess His name before others. And then be baptized 
for the forgiveness and remission of sins. If you have done that and have begun the Christian journey and the walk through life, but you have stumbled and failed, you've brought reproach upon Christ and upon the church, you've acted in ways that are simply disgraceful to others, come back to that first love. Let others know of your repentance and your intent to do better and that you have asked Jesus to again be by your side to provide the strength that you need. In each of those considerations, we have the pattern in the New Testament. If we could pray for you and on your behalf today, we'd be happy and honored to do it. If either of these things would be the need of your life, would you not let it be known even now while together we stand and while we sing?